of uh, spending a week or so sort of living with a passage and, and thinking about it and trying to study it and so on is, is that actually the, that first listen, that first time that you hear it, you lose, um, you lose the sense of what it hit, sort of sounds like when you first hear it. So I always try when I'm sitting there and somebody else is reading the passage to, to try and hear it afresh and think, well, what does this sound like? If this is the first time you're coming to it or the first time this week you're coming to it, what does it sound like? And it seems to me that as we're listening to this little bit of Paul's letter, probably, as far as we can tell, sat in a fairly nasty Roman jail, um, uh, put in prison for his faith, writing to little groups of Christians meeting in homes in um, the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, it seems to me that there's all sorts of ways in which this passage trips us up, or at least feels uncomfortable to us. I mean, for a start, there's this fairly harsh language it's not the sort of thing that you would generally write to a friend or to a group of people that you were had in good relationships with. Um, he talks about ignorance. He talks about being futile. Um, he talks about uh, indulgence. Uh, he talks about rage and slander. There's, there's a whole set of language that is quite hard-hitting. And in particular, he seems to be implying that there is a way of life that they could be in or that they could end up um, experiencing, or maybe that's part of their past or even present, that is a very negative. And he seems to pull no punches in it. Second thing that might trip us up is that there's an awful lot of language of what you might call command. There's a lot of obedience language. There's a lot of what you might call wagging finger language that goes on. You should or you should not. And we feel quite uncomfortable with that. That feels like school again, or that feels like um, a sort of harsh parent sort of language. And finally, maybe the hardest thing to hear is that when he starts talking about the way that we should live, it simply sounds unrealistic. I mean, how on earth could anybody really live this way? How could anybody be just this perfect type of person? But the language is there for a reason. The language is there because of what Paul is trying to do with his letter. And so what we have to do is slightly cast our minds back to last week and to the previous weeks been working our way through this letter. And to remember that when the first person heard this read out, they didn't read it in little chunks. They would have been sat in somebody's front room, maybe 20 or 30 people at maximum packed into somebody's front room. And this, I don't know, papyrus, this, this sheet would have been held up and simply read from beginning to end. And what they'd have just heard, and for those of you who were here last week, you might possibly remember this, um, what they will have just heard is Paul saying to them, um, you have to understand what the church, by which he means the gathering of God's people, is actually for. What do we exist for? Do we simply exist to keep an organisation going? Do we simply exist as a, a nice club, as something to belong to, something that helps glue communities together, something which is a series of plates to keep spinning and the, the money to keep coming in and the, the people to keep sitting on pews? No, says Paul. What the church is here for, what it exists for, is to make obvious, he uses the word in English, we translate it, to make manifest, to, to sort of show for the world to see God's work in the world. In other words, where people are looking at the church, at God's people gathered, they're meant to see, writ large, lived out in front of the world, what God is doing, what God is about, God's love and work in us in Jesus Christ. And what we re remembered last time is he said, therefore, if we're going to live as part of his church, we have to both, on the one hand, remember that this is 
pure gift, that the gift of unity in God's people, which is the thing that more than anything else shows the world a bit of what God is doing, breaking down the barriers between people, putting people on a level playing field before him, that that unity is a gift that we nurture rather than something that we have to manufacture ourselves. But that we also remembered last week that that gift is something that has to be worked at. The language of family reminds us that you can be a member of a family. That's a gift. You're born into it. You don't choose it. You simply appear there. But that if you're going to enjoy the benefits of belonging, it's hard work. It involves times when we have to forgive. It involves times when we have to love when we don't feel like loving. It involves times when we have to do stuff that we'd really rather not do. Gift and effort. Being given something and responding with hard work. What's the church for? It's to make God's love known in the world. I don't know whether you've ever seen um, some of the footage that gets taken with drones. There's one particular reporter on the BBC, and I can't remember his name now, that every time he does a report, he's obviously got, he's sort of into drone cameras. And every time you see a report that he does, almost irrespective of what he's reporting on, um, you see these shots where the, the, the camera seems magically to go up, you know, to get that zoom out here. And you go, oh, he's playing with the drone again. Um, but then it's the zooming down in to get the, 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 the fine detail of the picture. And it's as if in this chapter of the letter, the first half of chapter four is like the, the drone's eye view, the, the whole church, the big picture. What are God's people for? And then as we hit verse 17, which is what Sheila began to read for us today, it's as if the, we zoom in and we zoom in on you and on me. So rather than asking the question, what is the church for? He then says, well, what are you for? What am I for? If this is how we are to live and what we are to be, well, how am I to live? What am I to be? Even if you're not a mathematician, you'll probably have seen at some point in your life um, those patterns that are described as fractals, the Mandelbrot set and other things, where um, you start here. It's a very beautiful pattern. Um, it can look quite sort of uh, organic, like sort of fern leaves sometimes. And as you zoom in, what you find is that it doesn't matter how much you zoom in, the pattern remains the same, infinitely occurring, infinitely reoccurring. And you can zoom in again and again and again, and the same pattern occurs. Something like that is happening here in Ephesians 4. This big picture of God's church that we're given a gift that we then have to live out with some effort and hard work, we zoom in on you and me, and it's exactly the same. We're going to find the same language of where that life has to get lived out and the same pattern of a gift that we respond to. So the first thing to notice, just in these verses that Sheila read, is that the context in which all of this happens is exactly the same. We remember last week that the context in which God's love is most seen and most visible to the world is the language of family, of relationship. And that's what Paul says in this part of Ephesians 4 about your life and about my life. Look at verse 25 through to verse 32. Everything that he talks about is relational. Everything. All of these standards that he sets, they're all about how we relate to one another. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
Now, interestingly enough, verse 28, even some, anyone who has been stealing, even something which might seem to be very individualistic, stealing, the reason he says don't steal is so that instead, end of verse 28, you might do something useful so that you might have something to share with those in need. Even something that feels individualistic is still about our relationships with one another. Verse 29, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Why? Because actually what you want to be doing is building others up according to their needs, benefiting those who listen. Again and again and again, all the stuff that Paul says, this is what your life ought to look like. This is what following Jesus is described as. It's relational. If you like, it's the the pitch on which the game is played. lives in Twickenham are pretty much full of rugby at the moment and having a son who plays rugby and plays it fairly seriously um i and i it's a very many years ago since i played and i definitely didn't play it seriously i played it in order to get off the pitch in one piece um and go and have a warm shower um but watching those who play rugby seriously it's very clear that there's a huge amount of hard work that goes on behind the scenes before we ever got on the pitch there's strength and conditioning which makes if you talk to most rugby players about strength and conditioning they go a little bit pale because it's pretty much um, long, ongoing torture of just hard work, of getting fit, strength and conditioning. And then there's the, 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 the skill stuff, the, the passing off both hands, the reading the game, the being able to step um, your opponent. But if you say to them, well, why are you doing that? The answer isn't simply, I want to get stronger, or I want to get better at passing a rugby ball. In the rugby player's mind, it's all about the game. It's all about the pitch. Where it's lived out is there on the pitch in a competitive match. It's no good simply being strong or being skillful if you're not actually going to get on the pitch and put it into action. And for Paul, the playing surface, the game, in which the Christian life is lived out more than anything else, is the way we relate to other people. That's the whole game. That's what it's for. Again and again and again, when Paul wants to talk about what it looks like to live the Christian life, he uses illustrations pulled from family life or the way a body works. It's together language. How do you relate? So this stuff to do with how do we forgive those who've hurt us? The stuff to do with how do we treat those who are weaker or more vulnerable? The stuff to do with how do we think of those whom in another life we might despise or look down on or not respect or who might really get under our skin or up our nose. That's actually not a peripheral part of being a Christian. It's not like it's all to do with me and God on the inside and am I spiritual and do I pray enough. Actually, the real playing surface, the game that we play, what it's all about is played out in the way we relate to others. Paul is absolutely consistent. Beginning of Ephesians 4 is he talks about the whole church. End of Ephesians 4 is he talks about you and me. How do we relate to others? Human life is fundamentally relational. And the Christian way of life is to live that God's way. So how are we to live it? Well, as in the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to make the same two points again, but just make them for, for us as individuals. It's a gift that we have to make some effort with. The gift is the gift of new life. It's the gift of new life. Um, 
verses 17 through 19 talk about the old life. Fairly strong language, the sort of language that actually any uh, Jewish uh, men and women in the congregation would have recognised. It being the sort of thing that in those days you'd say about those of a different religion, particularly about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. This is pulled almost sort of word for word out of some of the texts they'd have recognised from their day. Pretty harsh language. But to say, actually, this is human life without God's help and intervention. This is the way that we tend to go. But then he says, verse 20, this is not the way of life you learned, heard about, were taught the truth. Verse 23, you are to be made new. Verse 24, you are to put on the new self created to be like God. That's a little phrase that probably trips us up a bit. If you, asked, if you were asked, what is your aim in life? Who are you trying to be like? We'd probably feel it was a bit above our station to say, I want to be like God. Sort of thing that gets you locked away. Be like God. It's not an accident, though. Verse 2, uh, sort of the very end, sorry, chapter 5, verse 2, right at the end of what we had read. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. Verse 1, follow God's example. In other words, our aim actually really is to live like God, to follow God's example lived out for us in Jesus. And the Bible says that possibility of being able to begin to do that is simply a gift. It's a new life we're given. It's a new status, a new identity. We are given it The, the example that Paul uses in Romans is the language of adoption. He says, actually, it is something that you receive just as if you were being adopted into a new family. You're given a piece of paper that says, you now belong to this new family. Can you buy it? No. Do you have to deserve it? No. Is it something that in a week's time might be somehow lost? No, it's a new legal status, it's a new identity, it's a new belonging, a new surname, if you like. You belong. You just belong. It's a gift. It's a new life. So what Paul is saying here is the fundamental idea at the heart of being a follower of Jesus is that you have a gift that you've been given, something that's been put in your hands. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What effect is it going to have on your life? How is it going to be lived out? And that's where the effort comes in. He says, you've learned about it, verse 20. You've heard about it. You were taught it, verse 21. You know about it, in other words, but you have to do something about it. And so he says, verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off the old, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. You need to put off anger and instead forgive. You need to put off stealing and instead work hard. You have to put off unwholesome talk and instead build people up. In other words, he makes this contrast. This old life you live without God. You're given the gift of the possibility of a new life. Now you have to put it on. This thing of wearing the right uniform actually comes into lots of parts of life. We see it on the rugby pitch. We see it in the... Uh, the, 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 the armed services, we see it in the police force, you might see it if you're working in a restaurant, that sense of you wear something 
that is right for the context in which you're working. So Paul steals that idea. He says it's like a set of clothes. You've been given this new life. Now you have to put it on. It's no good it just sort of sitting there. You have to put it on. You have to live it. You have to live it out. And as you live it out, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. It looks like better relationships with one another. It looks like treating one another in the way that God treats us. Aspiring to treat the person sitting next to you, the person in your family, the person in your work colleague, the way that God treated them in Jesus Christ. That's the language that he finishes with. Chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. We're to look at the way that Jesus treated people and to realise that's the way he treats us and then choose to live that same way towards others. It's a gift. We get to be members of God's family. We get to be God's friends. Not because we've lived a good life, but despite the fact that we haven't. We get to be part of God's family, not because we've earned it, not because we've done something to make it, but simply because God in Jesus Christ has loved us with an ever, everlasting love, with a never-giving-up love. Jesus lives that perfect life in our place. Jesus dies the death that we cannot die, mustn't face alone. And he lives a new life for us. He gives us a gift. He says, you get to belong. You get to be part of my family. You get to be a friend of God. So now, says Paul, if you've been given the gift of new life, put off your old life and put on the new one. It's like arriving somewhere wearing clothes that you've worn for a month. Stinky and dirty and and virtually standing up on their own. Being given a a shower and a, a brand new set of clothes. And being unwilling to put them on. Preferring to go back to the old way preferring to go back to the old familiar clothes. They might stink, but they're mine. They don't require too much of me. They don't ask too much of me. Instead, Paul says, put off the old, put on the new. And that's where the challenge comes. Because in the Christian life, there is always both the one-time gift and the everyday response. The one-time gift of God in Jesus, the gift of new life for you and for me, that we can never lose by being bad, that we didn't have to earn by being good. It's just a gift, the gift of belonging to God's family. But the everydayness of the Christian life is having to choose every day to put off that old way of living and to put on this new set of clothes in the way that I relate to the people around me, especially. It's far easier not to. It's far easier to wear the old clothes. It's far easier to just stumble back into the old ways. But to land it where we started, if through our lives, individually and together, that's the way the world is meant to see the gift of God, then if I go on wearing the old clothes, nobody's ever going to know the gift of God in Jesus Christ. People generally need to experience it before they're ready to hear it before they're ready to respond, before they're ready to change. People will experience the love of God through your life, how you love them, 
how you live out that new life. People experience the, God by, by the life of God by being a member here, by sensing that sense of belonging, of a warmth of welcome, of an unconditional love, of a sense of all being on a level playing field before God. And that's what will then open people up to the possibility of where does that new life come from? How is it that you are so sure that I am loved by God? How is it that you are able to love me in this way that seems new and strange and rather wonderful? People usually need to belong to give them the chance of believing. And through that, then start to, if you like, behave the way the new life leads them to behave. That's our challenge. It's our challenge as we choose to grow as a church because we think the good news of Jesus is for everybody. It's our challenge for us as individuals as we live into the Monday through Saturday of the coming week. What does God's new life look like in your life and in mine? Let's pray together.